title of the passage, the title of the sermon today is um, The Power of Grace. And Paul, in dealing with 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at the latter part of 1 Corinthians 3 and then into 1 Corinthians 4. And he's dealing with the uh, Corinthian church that is very much like ours. And I, I know that one of the reasons we identify so well with this letter is because it speaks to uh, it speaks to a culture that matches the culture in Corinth at the time of the Apostle Paul. Um, they were wise in their philosophies, they were wise in their sciences, and we believe that we are wise in the wisdom of men according to uh, this age and according to our sciences as well. But we've actually fooled ourselves into thinking that we are better than others, that we're smarter, that we're harder working, that we're more prosperous, and yet we're no closer as a people or as a culture to answering the basic questions of life, why am I, how, where did I come from, why am I here and where am I going, than the Greeks were at that time. And only a cursory look at the word of God or a quick glance at history reveals that we as a culture, as a people, we're not wise, but we too are self-deceived. We don't have the answers to these basic questions in life. In fact, we're still groveling in the dark. I saw an interview by Barbara Walters um, that she did with Peter Rogers, the father of Elliot Rogers, the, the young man who killed seven and wounded 11 down in Santa Barbara some weeks back. And as I listened to the interview and I listened to her ask questions and I listened to him give answers and as I listened to the experts, as I listened to everybody involved, all the answers, all the experts trying to figure out what happened when listening to that testimony relative to the word of God, I realized that they were all catastrophically wrong. I mean, not just a little off, but completely off because they were trying to look at a problem and come up with answers according to the wisdom of this age, and there are no answers. Paul said, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. I pray we become fools this morning. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, so let no one boast in men. The Corinthian church had embraced their culture by exalting men. They said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And they had deceived themselves. Now the problem with self-deception is you don't know that you're deceived, right? I mean, that's the great problem, the great danger, is that we, we can't detect it. If you are self-deceived then your wisdom, your counsel, your education, your upbringing, and your conscience are all contributing factors to your own self-deception. Therefore, what we need is a word, right? We need an external word. We need an external power. We need someone coming from outside of us to speak truth into us, to overcome our pride and overcome our self-deception. We need, as Paul saw last week when he preached to the church at Corinth, we need a word from God to come in. And have a right bearing in our life to set us free from our own self-deception. But that means, saints, that this morning, listen closely, every single one of us, including myself, this morning, if you're deceived, you don't even know it. If you're self-deceived, you don't know that you're self-deceived. You think that you're seeing things clearly, but if you're deceived, you're not. And so by God's grace, I pray that we will reject the wisdom of this age and we will hear the word of God, that we might be set free from our own self-deception and live as he's called us to live, as a holy people by his grace. Three things I want to look at this morning. One, the problem of pride. Anyone here not have a problem of pride? Good, I'm not the only one. Number two, the foolishness of pride. And number three, the power of grace. The problem of pride, the foolishness of pride, and the power of grace. Let's look at the first problem, the problem of pride. The Corinthian church was a puffed-up church. I mean, these were people who were able to use their cognitive skills to think and to reason and to engage in philosophical dialogue. They were puffed up. And instead of deriving their glory from God, instead of them deriving their glory from Jesus Christ... They put their glory in other men. They said things like, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. In other words, they did exactly what Paul said they ought not do. In Romans chapter 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, in this particular case, for actual men. Now, this is not uncommon. It's not even uncommon in the church today, where a brother or sister will, will align themselves with a particular 
older role model or a brother or sister in the church or a particular author or a preacher and they will align themselves with that person in such a way that it becomes inordinate. It becomes idolatrous. Well, they say, well, you know, I listen to Pastor X or I listen to, or I read Author Z and these are the people that I've aligned myself with. Not hearing the good counsel that comes from the word but making an idol out of it. Now, the great danger of this form of idolatry is that it leads to rather two ugly components. One, judgmentalism, and two, self-exaltation. Different sides of the same coin. Judgmentalism and self-exaltation. Look at verse 3. Paul says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. They had rendered judgment against Paul, not in terms of his salvation, but aligning themselves with Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And they were making judgments about his ministry. You know, his influence. Who was the better teacher? Who was the better pastor? Who was the better preacher? Who brought the word better? Now, this type of judgmentalism in the context of the church is ugly because it produces, as we saw last week, jealousy, rivalry, and division. And it's hateful to God. When groups of Christians begin to align themselves with a particular individual and in so doing lift themselves up by saying, I love this person and I hate that person, They begin to use their tongue to exalt one or tear down another. Reputations are lifted up or torn down. And the problem is that the center, the focus, is no longer in God. It's now upon man. The entire dialogue that was taking place in Corinth, not only was it wicked in its substance, but it was wicked in its origin because it took the focus off God and it put it on man. They were talking about Paul and Cephas and and Apollos and not Jesus Christ. They had lost their focus. Whether by lifting up man, I follow Paul, or tearing one down, I do not follow Apollos. Man is glorified rather than God. Now, the flip side of that coin of judgmentalism is self-exaltation. Saints, you know this well, as I do. Whenever we put someone down, we're doing it for one of two reasons. If we put someone down to lift ourselves up, we want to be exalted. And if we lift someone else up in order to ride on their coattails, we want to be exalted as well. Either way, we're trying to receive glory in some capacity by tearing someone down or lifting them up pridefully. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, Already you have what you already you have all you want, already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. This is sarcasm, by the way, and it's not foreign to Paul to use sarcasm and satire to make a very pointed point. In this particular case, he wants them to see that they have elevated themselves. Paul's saying, given your lofty position and your self-exaltation, you have obviously already arrived. You are rich and you are powerful like kings. And you've done all this, Paul says, without any of our help, without any help from the apostles. You've already made it. And you've left us poor apostles. You've left us behind and went on to perfection on your own. They are self-deceived. And so what Paul does... And Paul's doing it by the influence of the Holy Spirit. So be careful. Sarcasm can be a very dangerous thing, but it can also be very effective. He's trying to break through this veil of self-deception and get them to see that they haven't already arrived. They're not perfect yet. They're not rich and they're not kings. In fact, we know from a couple weeks of the doctrines of the faith because they're so immature in their faith. I'm sure all of you have heard someone say, well, aren't you perfect? This was the mentality that the Corinthians had of themselves that they had somehow ascended the throne, but they were only ascending the throne because they had placed themselves there. When you condemn someone, when you judge someone, you are ascending the throne and you're making yourself perfect. When you attach yourself to a popular preacher or a teacher or a pastor or someone else, you're trying to ascend by their glory, making yourself perfect. We've made ourselves many in our self-deceived minds, at least at that moment, you think that you have all that you want. You're already rich. You're already kings. He pushes this a little further and he compares their standing in the world to that of the apostles. Look at verse 10. Paul says, We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul's saying all of this in the context of you've elevated yourself and by comparison from a worldly standard, when you look at us, you must be quite pleased because look at us. We're weak. In fact, look at what he says in verse 9. 
We live like men sentenced to die as spectacles to the world. And you look down on us as objects of ridicule. Such a grievous thing for any believer, let alone an entire church. So highly self-destructive because the judgmental, self-exalted believer is not able to be taught. Verse 19 in chapter 3 says, He thinks he is wise in this age, not teachable. He will not serve others because he will not, as the Bible says, consider others better than himself, Philippians 2, 3. But worse yet, the prideful, self-exalted believer is hideous in the eyes of God because it is contrary to the very purpose for which you were created. You were not created to bring glory to yourself. You were not created to ride on the coattails and bring glory to another man. You were created to bring glory and honor to God. That is your purpose. That's why you were made. And therefore, the problem of pride goes way beyond someone not being teachable or way beyond someone not being willing to serve and certainly way beyond just being difficult to be around. You know, when we're prideful, we're not, no one wants to be around us. We've all been around that, and it just causes um, people to move away. The problem of pride goes to the very core, the very purpose in the kingdom. It renders you ineffective because you are so glory-starved, you're trying to glean it by any means possible, rendering judgment, exalting yourself, lifting others up, placing your glory in someone or something other than God. And left unresolved, listen closely, Pride left unresolved leads to one of two things, either an eternity in hell or two, you coming before God as we saw last week from 1 Corinthians 3 and all of your work, all of your life being burned up and you enter heaven as though through flames. Neither of those are good. Now, I can tell you, I can tell you that I understand the power of self-deception in my own life well and I understand the power of pride in my own life well. I want us to see clearly this morning. I don't want a single person to leave this place this morning being fooled for even a moment longer that pride in the context of the gospel is okay. We live in a culture much like the the time of Corinth in the days of Paul where we teach and we encourage self-exaltation. We encourage judgmentalism. We encourage taking great pride in your work, in your school, in your family. Take pride in these things, glory in these things. And so by God's grace, from his word, we will continue to look at how we can break down this pride and self-exaltation. Let's look at the second point, the foolishness of pride. The entire Bible screams of the foolishness of pride in the heart of man. Leviticus 26, 19, I will break down, God says, I will break down your stubborn pride. Obadiah 1, 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Psalm 10, 4, in his pride, the wicked does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Proverbs eleven two. when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 13, Ted, pride only breeds quarrels. Isaiah 23, 9, the Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble, to humble all who are renowned on the earth. Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Listen to this. He says, be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. A cursory read of scripture reveals the absolute absurdity of pride coming into and dominating the life of any man, saved or unsaved, but certainly for those who profess Christ and follow the Savior. And Paul adds to this list by drawing it into the context of the gospel. And so for those of us who are gospel-saved, gospel-preaching, gospel-teaching people, he says it's even more foolish when you look at pride in the life of a believer who professes and follows Jesus Christ, a crucified Christ. And first, I want to show you, he deals with this in the comprehensive truth about all those who are in Christ, in that you lack nothing in Christ. Look at verses 21 through 23 again in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, So let no no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Did you hear that? For the believer now, this is for those who are saved, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, listen to this list, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. 
And you are Christ, and Christ is God. And that means taking positions and trying to find glory in a particular individual or a particular thing or trying to grab on to possessions to bring glory to yourself is, is utter foolishness for the believer because Paul is saying, you already have it. What are you trying to hold on to? You have it in Christ. To glory in anything, person or thing, is to put your trust in, your confidence in that person as the source of worth. Did you hear that? Really important. To glory in anything, person or thing, is to put your trust in, your confidence in that person or thing as the source of worth, the giver of value and meaning and purpose in life. If you're a workaholic, as an employee, the only reason you get up in the morning is to go to work, then you're finding your purpose and your worth in your job. If you're a mother and you find your purpose and your worth and your children alone, then that is your glory. That's where you're the source of your glory. If you're a husband and you find all of your, your purpose and meaning in life from your wife, then that is the source of your glory. Anything or anyone we use to find our rest, our satisfaction, and our purpose for living is our glory. And as with those in Corinth who are glorying in Paul or Apollos or Cephas or their wisdom, we regard ourselves as blessed because of our relationship to these things, but we're not blessed, we're cursed. Paul reminds them how foolish these glory attachments are for anyone who is truly in Christ. Why? He says, because, and he says this in love, he says, if you're in Christ, you have all things. If you're in Christ, you lack nothing. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, the apostle said, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, the church, is that they would be heirs of the world. You have all things. All things are yours. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, life, death, present, future, they're all yours. If you are Christ. Christ is God's. He ends that particular verse. And you are Christ and Christ is God. Christ is God's. And that means the Father gives to the Son because of his radical obedience on the cross all things. In John chapter 13, 3, says the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. And that means you, if you belong to Christ, have all things as well. You're co-heirs with Jesus. That means any attempt by any believer to bring glory to yourself by aligning yourself with a man, Paul or Cephas or Apollos, or gleaning possessions, or trying to find rank or position or money or power, any glory grab that you are trying to bring to you as a believer is the height of foolishness because Paul's saying you already have it. You already have it. It's all been given to Christ, and if you're in Christ... It's all been given to you, and therefore you, we, the church, all glory and honor should be given to God. You know, the boys have over the years, they would often glory in the fact that I would give them something that, that, was, a, that, was, my, that was mine, whatever that means, in my house, in our house. I had a guitar, I used to play the guitar, and I had it sitting in my den for, I don't know, too long, years likely, and Brandon was starting to play the guitar. And so I gave him my guitar. And, and he was just ecstatic that I gave him my guitar. And on the one hand, I understand that because it was mine and I'm passing it down to his. And the other hand, I thought, it's, it's been yours all along. It's always been yours. You're a member of this house. It's been in the house. It wasn't like I said, this is my guitar. You can't touch it or play with it. It was his guitar too. And what he didn't realize, which I pray he does now, that as my son... It was always his. It was always his. Paul's saying, all believers, listen, all things belong to you. So whatever you're trying to grab onto to bring glory to yourself, whether it's allegiance with a popular teacher or a particular possession that you got to have or a job title you got to have, Paul's saying, listen, I love you. Don't be foolish. You have all things in Christ. So whatever you're trying to grab is foolishness. But he says something else here that I found incredibly compelling. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, this is how one should regard us. Paul's saying, you're thinking about me, you're thinking about Apollos, you're thinking about Cephas. 
This is how you should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, he's saying, not only are you foolish for trying to grab glory in your allegiance with me or, or Apollos, because you have all things in Christ, but you're also foolish because we're servants. We're stewards. He says, I'm a servant, not a master. I'm a steward, not an owner. I own nothing. And Paul says, and yet you're trying to glean glory by attaching yourself to me, and I'm yet but a lowly servant. Look at verse 13. He says, we have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. In other words, from a worldly perspective, which pride is, if they were going to attach themselves to Paul, or attach themselves to Paulos, it wouldn't bring glory, it'd bring shame. It wouldn't bring pride, it'd be humility. Because they too become the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Seeking glory in men, in servants, in stewards, rather than God who is the master and owner of all things, is the height of foolishness. In other words, they had tried to attach their glory wagons to those they thought were in positions of prominence in God's kingdom. And even this was utterly foolish. Look, look at verses 3 through 5. They could not even know whether or not Paul or Paulus or Cephas were faithful servants in the Lord. Paul says, I can't even know that. Not yet. Look at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. He says, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul had been commended by the people in Corinth. Apollos had been commended by the people in Corinth. In other words, they had already judged their ministry. They had already judged their standing before God. And then they've attached themselves to those individuals. Now, Paul's saying, I can't even judge myself. How can you possibly judge me? The question of Paul's faithfulness was not to be decided by other men or even, now listen closely, saints, even his own conscience. Consciousness is a partial and oftentimes unreliable judge. I cannot count the number of times that I've been ministering to a brother and sister in Christ caught in sin, knowable, visible sin, And they said to me, well, my conscience is clear. And I would say to them in love, a clear conscience does not mean a clean record. Do you get that? Your conscience may be clear because you are self-deceived, but it doesn't mean that you're okay before the living God. Remember, when we're self-deceived, if you are self-deceived in your sin, your conscience is going to be crystal clear when it should be horribly convicted. That's what self-deception does. It fools us. It tricks us. Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, you cannot rightly judge me because I cannot rightly judge myself. I can't even rightly judge my fidelity in Christ and you're going to judge me and then attach yourself to me and try to receive glory because of my name? Paul said, this is the height of foolishness. What Paul's saying is, you don't know my motive. You can't see my heart. You don't know why I'm doing all this. You don't know why Apollos is doing all this. You don't know. Now, To be careful, this does not negate our call to examine ourselves. It does. Nor does it negate what Paul will teach us next week regarding church discipline and dealing with situations where believers are in continuous unrepentant sin. But it does reveal, whether we want to believe it or not, is that there are secrets in the heart of man that will only be known and can only be known by God, the searcher of the soul, on that day. I I believe we're going to be utterly shocked by those in positions of prominence when the work is revealed and tested by fire. And I believe we'll be utterly shocked by those who served faithfully, long and hard, with the right motive and the right heart, the degree to which God magnifies that work. So Paul says, it's foolish to try to exalt me or Apollos or Cephas and attach yourselves to us and receive glory it's foolish because all things are yours already. It's foolish because you can't, you can't even judge our work yet. Only God will do that on the day. He said, it's foolish because I'm only a servant. These are all compelling reasons to destroy pride. 
But he offers us one more, and I believe it's the most compelling reason of all to utterly destroy pride and usher radical gospel humility into the life of every believer. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 and 7. Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And they had gone beyond what is written. They had gone beyond their ability to discern, to judge these men. And then they've gone beyond what is written by attaching their glory to these men when all glory and honor belongs to God alone. He continues, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And they had, I love that word, puffed up. I mean, isn't that great? You can... That puffiness, you know, have your, you, you get puffy sometimes when you get full of pride and you puff yourself up and you're all that and you think you're all that and you look like you're all that. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? By elevating certain men over others and deriving their glory from these man-made allegiances rather than God, they'd gone beyond Scripture and they had puffed themselves up. And it was utterly foolish because Paul says in verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, you're acting so important. You're you're, you're presenting yourself in such a way filled with self-conceit. And we know from chapter 1 that they were only infants. So they weren't even that far along in the faith. They're only infants. But Paul says, even if you were following Christ faithfully, even if I saw coming from you great love and great spiritual maturation and ministry and service, even if I saw those things in you, if I did, they were given to you by God. You didn't come up with these things on your own. These were not, these were not, these did not come from inside of you. They were gifts. You received them. And if you receive them, how dare you boast in yourself and not in God? It was not due to themselves, but God that these works, any work, any good work would come from them or from us. So Paul's saying not only, not only is it foolish, but it's dishonest. It's dishonest. If you're growing your faith in Christ and you find yourself ministering more and loving more and serving more, it's dishonest to say that, well, that's all me. You received it from God if that's true. And therefore the glory belongs to God and not to you. So he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why, why, do, you, why do you speak and act as though these internal changes were brought upon by you and not by God? Why do you take ownership of something that was given to you freely that you did not earn? That you did not earn. In the academic world, we call that plagiarism. This receiving goodness from God, mercies from God, power from God, to do good works in God, this should produce gratitude and humility, not self-applause. If you see yourself growing in Christ, it shouldn't be that a boy. You shouldn't be giving yourself a hand. It should be all glory to God. I don't know what else there to say about the foolishness. Pride, judgmentalism, self-exaltation. It's the height of foolishness. The right response, saints, to the gospel of grace is not I follow Paul, it's I worship God. The right response is not judging the merits of Apollos. It's rejoicing in the merits of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. The right response is not self-exaltation, it's humility and gratitude. That's the right response in the gospel of grace to the work of Christ. It's exalting the person of Jesus Christ. It's exalting the crucified, risen Savior. The work he did on the cross, it's lifting him up. Because he's the one who's made you who you are. And he's the one who will make you who you ultimately will become. He's doing this great work in we can honestly say and we can honestly sing all glory and honor and praise be to you forever and ever. We can say that truthfully. And one day we'll see that. When we stand before God, for those of you who know Christ, when you stand before God and we experience the testing fire that we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 3, all the good, the gold and the silver and the precious jewels that we see come from that, you're going to say, praise be to God, praise be to God. Every work that stands will be glory-giving work to God. Not one, we say, oh, that piece of gold, that's mine. No, no, that jewel, I did that one. 
All of it will be glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. So I pray that we see that pride is a problem and that it is utterly foolish. On, and there's so many other levels here that we could talk about, but it is, it is a problem and it is utterly foolish. Now, last point. If you're like me, you were going through this, you say, oh, oh, oh that, that's, this is me. This is me. This is my life. This is my resume. A foolish, self-exalting, prideful person. That's me. You want to hire me? The problem with this is often veiled by our self-deception. Speaking to prideful people about pride is a hard thing. Because if you're proud, you're not going to hear it. Why? Because you're self-deceived. There's a veil there. So simply telling you that pride is a problem and simply pointing out that it's utterly foolish, for the self-deceived prideful person, they'll say, yeah, but that's not me. It doesn't apply to me. I agree with everything you said, but that's not me. How do we hear a word? How do we have God speak truth into our lives that we don't leave here self-deceived, self-exalting, prideful people or a self-exalting, prideful church? How do we do that? How do we end up not being like the Corinthian church where the Apostle Paul needs to write us a letter? Look at verse 16. He urges those in Corinth, as well as us today, to be imitators of him. Now, some of you from a fleshly family realize, oh, he's trying to get more glory. He's trying to build a bigger allegiance, right? He had people there in Corinth that were saying, Paul, 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 Paul. And now he's getting more, saying, be an imitator of me. It's one way to interpret it. It's wrong. He's not trying to make partisan followers to his own glory. He is trying to redirect glory back to God through Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul said this. As an imitator, listen, he says, glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, be an imitator of me and direct all your glory back to God. Glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul knew what it was like to put confidence in the flesh. I mean, he had a resume, right? Circumcised on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? As the law of Pharisee. I mean, this guy had the resume, And he also knew, he knew prior to his conversion in Christ how easy it is for us to deceive ourselves by ourselves. Thinking that we have become rich. We already are kings. We already have arrived. Paul's achievements from the world and even the religious community were impressive to say the least, but he continues in Philippians 3. Listen, these are some of the most powerful verses in all sacred scripture, I do believe. He says, whatever gain I had, listen, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is the imitation that Paul's talking about. He said, imitate me like this. Die to yourself completely and see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And that means, saints, that means you've got to put all your trophies away. You've got to take all the things that you're trying to attach glory to, to receive purpose and significance and value in your life, and you've got to put those away. You've got to put away all the good works that you can't wait to show God so that he'll let you in. You've got to put away all those attachments, all the people that you are aligning yourself with, all the authors and all the preachers and all the friends say, well, I know so-and-so. You ever met a name dropper? Yeah, I know them. I know them. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why? Because they want you to know they know them and go, wow, you you must be something else too. These glory-starved attachments, Paul says, I count as a complete loss counting everything as lost. Why? Because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing value, the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Knowing Him as Lord. Knowing Him as King. Knowing Him as your friend. Knowing Him as your Savior. Knowing Him as a lover of your soul. I mean, knowing Him. Not knowing about Him. Not just knowing His name, but knowing Him personally and intimately. And some of you, I don't think do. I don't. I don't think you know Him Even if you've been going to church and you've been baptized, I think some of you don't know Christ. 
And therefore, you run around trying to grab the glory because you're still glory starved because you're not satisfied in the infinite surpassing worth and glory of God through Christ. And so you say, well, I follow Apollos and I follow, I follow Paul and look at my job and look at my bank account and look at my wife and look at my children. Glory, glory, glory. Why? Because you don't know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. In other words, many of us are still self-deceived. We know about Christ. We know about church. We know about preaching. We know about the Bible, but we don't know Jesus. We don't know him. Paul's saying it's better than any trophy you've ever earned. It's better than any accolade, better than any work you'll ever do, better than than any personal relationship with any person, no matter how powerful or how glorious in the eyes of the world, better, infinitely more so, infinitely surpassing glory in Christ, knowing Christ and glory in Christ. It so surpasses our pathetic glory that our pride produces. But it requires, saints, you're glorying in him and not in yourself. Remember the definition I gave you, to glory in anything, person, anything, person or thing, is to put your trust and your confidence in that person or thing as the source of your glory, the foundation upon which you derive your worth and your satisfaction, your purpose and meaning in life. Now, Paul understood this source to be the glory in Jesus Christ. He understood that. And that's why he says in verse 8 of Philippians 3, he says, for his sake... For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I what? That I may gain Christ. Why? Because Paul got it. He said, it doesn't matter that I was circumcised on the eighth day. It doesn't matter that I was of the tribe of Benjamin. It doesn't matter that I was a Hebrew of Hebrew. It doesn't matter that I was a Pharisee. None of that matters. If I gain Christ, if I have Christ, I have everything. And if I have everything and I don't have Christ, I have nothing. He got it. He got the source of glory. He got the power of glory. And by God's grace, through the cross, he was able to be part of that as well. Gaining Christ, saints, is the end. It is the aim. Having Christ now, putting your glory in him now, rather than ourselves or others or our work or our possessions, will enable us. And here's the key to the application. It will enable us to live as Christ calls us to live, a holy life. You'll have an alien righteousness about you. You'll actually be able to engage in this faith and live differently, to change on the inside. That'll change the outside entirely. Not self-inflated, pride-filled lives like the Corinthians, but joyfully becoming spectacles of the world. Fools for Christ, verses 9 and 10. I love verse 13 is my favorite. As the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That should be on our resume. Why should I hire you? Because I'm a spectacle to the world. Why else? I'm a fool for Christ. Why else? I'm the scum of the world, and the refuse of all things. That's our resume as believers. Is it yours? Is it yours? I've read some of your resumes. Sounds more Corinthian-esque. Lots of self-exaltation. I know, I know, you've got to play the game to get the job right. You put this down. You do verses 9, 10, and 13 in 1 Corinthians 4. You're not going to get a job. I get that. But what do you really think about yourself? What do you really know about yourself? Do you say that you're a spectacle of the world, a fool for Christ, scum of the world, refuse of all things? Do you know that about yourself in Christ? You know, Paul uses these two words, scum and refuse. Those are powerful words. Scum sounds powerful, right? Refuse, garbage. They were used, listen closely, they were used at that time amongst the pagans to identify people, victims, who would be chosen from the lowliest classes to be offered up as pagan sacrifices to pagan gods. Living sacrifices during times of great calamity, as a propitiation to appease the wrath of the gods. The scum and the refuse, they were living sacrifices, people that were killed to appease God. Now, Paul was not identifying himself as a sacrifice for many, but he was revealing to us the source of the power by which we can live a sacrificial life. He was pointing to the one who became the scum and became the refuse. He was pointing to the very glory of God who made himself nothing. Philippians 2, 7 and 8, emptying himself, 
taking the form of a servant, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and you know this, even death on a cross. He became the scum of the world. He became the refuse of all things. The power, saints, listen, to overcome your self-deceived, my pride-filled life. The power for us as a church to live these self-effacing lives, to live as Paul calls us to live. Look at verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. To live like this, to live like this, the power comes from the one who became the scum and the refuse. It flows. The power flows from the cross of Christ because Jesus Christ is the source of glory. He became the scum and he became the refuse. He became the sacrifice in our place. Not only to save us and to grant us eternal life in him, but to become for us the never-ending source of glory today that you might have power today to exercise this holy living, to be a holy people, real, gospel, life-changing power to love as Christ loves and to serve as Christ serves and to generously give and sacrifice as Christ gave and sacrificed his own life as a ransom for you and for me and all who would repent and believe. Now that's, that's a different Christianity. That's not a Christianity that, that has a form of godliness but denies its power in 2 Timothy 3.5. That's a form of Christianity that is in word and in deed that is in profession and practice, that is on the inside and the outside of a man. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Paul's going to test them. He says, You know, you guys talk a lot. I'm going to come and I'm going to see if there's any power there. And then he says in verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The Corinthians had fooled themselves. They were expert talkers. They had lifted themselves up by their own speech. And Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to test your speech. We're going to find out if there's any real external life of this Christian internal transformation. We're going to find out. Because the inward graces, you know where the kingdom of God reigns? You know where it reigns here on earth? In the hearts of men. In the hearts of those who have been saved by grace those who have been changed and transformed by the power of God. The hearts of those where the power of grace is truly exercised and not just talked about, not just heard, but exercised. The more I reflected upon the letter thus far, the more I realized how much we, how much I, we are, we have so much in common with the Corinthian church. We're, we're prideful people. We're judgmental people. We're self-exalting people. We are milk-fed people with very little power to attest to our faith in Christ. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about this church today, the church today here. Where's the power? There's so much talk, but where, where are the lives that are transformed so radically that communities are changed? Where are the lives that are impacted so dramatically by the gospel that work environments change and schools change and families change and marriages are renewed? Where is, where's that happening? Where's that power? Because that's the power of the gospel. It's real power. It's kingdom power. If you want to change like this, if you want to be transformed as we've been commanded to be transformed, it's a command, by the way, if we want to live the remaining years of our lives individually and our lives as a church, Camden Avenue Baptist Church, if we, if we want to pursue Christ in this way and actually see power come into this place and then go out from this place in our marriages, in our families, in our community, with the lost, with our neighbors, with the sick, with the hurting, with the poor, real power, if we want to see that, then we must we, collective, must return to the source of glory. We must return to the source of glory. Because so many of us are still, we're glory grabbing in all the wrong places. So many of us are still trying to derive glory from things that are perishing. We're trying to get glory from work, or glory from family, or even glory from ministry and church. The glory has to be in the right source, which is Christ himself.
Pride is hateful to God because it denies him the glory he rightly deserves. It's hateful to God. God through Christ deserves all the glory because he is the one that's dispensing it. If God dispenses the grace and the grace is the power by which we live, then God deserves all the glory. John Piper says it like this, the giver of grace gets all the glory. The giver of grace deserves all the glory. How do we know that? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. That means if anyone's going to do anything that's good or right or true, if you're going to engage in ministry, if you're going to love people, it should be by God's strength. Why? So that when you do this great work of God, when you bear this great fruit in God, it says in verse 11, so that in all things, that means everything that we do, every word, every thought, every act of love, in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And then it says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We hate that God gets all the glory. I mean, fundamentally, we can't stand that. We've got to have a little bit for ourselves. But all glory and all honor belong to God. He is the grace giver. So we'll respond to this in one of three ways. Number one, you'll say, you'll just ignore it. Right? We'll say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll go cheap grace. I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You said that. Ephesians 2, I know that. And that I don't need to serve. I don't need to work. I don't, I don't need to engage in this holy living that you've called me to here. Or we may say, I need to serve. And then we do it on our own strength. You run the race set before you, as we're told in Hebrews 12, 1. But you run on your own wisdom, your own energy, and your own power. Most of you will never make it. But if you do cross that finish line, even if you do on your own strength, it's a hideous line to cross. Because what have you done? If you make it past that line, you're going to stand there, and then all the glory will come to you. And that is idolatry, and that is destruction. I don't know what's worse. Not pursuing holiness at all or pursuing holiness and receiving all the glory. God says, to me be the glory and the power forever and ever. To me be the glory and power forever and ever. There's a third way to respond to this holy calling. This is the right way. Listen, saints. We run the race to win. You run it. You fight hard. You strive and you pursue holiness in life, but not by your power, but by his. Not by your strength, by his strength. His grace. And then, when you cross the line and you've won, you will say, all glory and honor belong to you, Father. You're the one, you are the grace giver. You gave me the gifts. I received them from you. I could do none of this on my own. God's name is then magnified because of the life you have lived. Now some may say, Pastor, I try. I try to serve. I try to minister. I try to run the race. But every time I set out, I run out of gas. I get distracted. I get tired. I get annoyed. I get impatient. And then sometimes when I do make it across that line, I want all the glory myself. I don't want to give any of it up. Might I suggest before I close that if you find yourself in that situation, unable to finish the race, distracted, tired, that you are on a daily basis not drinking deeply from the glory that God provides, from the grace that he provides. Not going daily to the fountain of grace. Daily bathing in it, swimming in it, drinking from it deeply. You know, many evangelicals, when we talk about grace, we talk about it in its past pardoning sense. We think about it in the context of the grace that was poured out through Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's glorious, amazing grace. And then we say, well, you know, now let that stir gratitude in your life and then you run the race. That doesn't work. That's highly destructive. 
the grace that Jesus Christ poured out on the cross by living a sinless life, by dying a sinner's death, by, by, raising, by being raised from the dead and then overcoming sin and death and hell and imparting that to us, that's glorious grace. But every single believer needs grace every day, new grace and new mercies every day if you want to live this holy life that you've been called to live. You cannot simply look back upon the cross and with a grateful heart pursue holiness. It's still then on your own works, right? You're saying, well, I'm going to look back at the grace that God poured out there and because I'm going to have gratitude in my heart, I will then run the race with gratitude and it's my gratitude. You cannot, I'm going to make this real simple. You can't look back on the grace that was given and expect to have the power and the grace today any more than you can run your car on yesterday's gas. If you're going to drive your car, you need gas in your car today, today's gas. And if you're going to drive your car tomorrow, you need tomorrow's gas. You get in your car today and you have yesterday's gas and your tank's empty, you're not going to go anywhere. You want to run this race that, that, that Paul was calling us to, that he's calling the church at Corinth to, that he's calling Camden Avenue to, then you must have grace today, mercies today, new grace and new mercies in order to run this race well. Lamentations 3, 22, 23. You ready? Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Praise God for that. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every what? Every morning. You know this. Great is God's faithfulness. Every morning, new mercies I see. Every morning, new mercies I need. Every morning, every hour, every day, if I'm going to pursue this life. You cannot run on yesterday's mercy. You cannot fight on yesterday's grace. You can't serve, you can't love, you cannot minister as God has called you to do on past power. You need present power. You need present strength. So do I. You need it every morning, you need it every day, you need it every hour. New mercies for sins committed. New grace for strength to press on. New blessings for God's children. And God promises you new grace to do today's battle. Saints, I know some of you are going through a fire right now and you're being tested. I know that. Some of you are going through a real difficult time at this present moment. If you think that you're going to get through that crisis in your life today by simply looking back at the grace poured out on the cross, then you are foolish. You need new grace today. You need to go to the fountain of Christ today and drink deeply from the Christ, from the grace that pours out from the cross, never ending, never ceasing mercies. Today, if you want to get through today. Now, some of you say, well, today I'm okay. Tomorrow I got to go to work and it's bad. I mean, you got things going on at work. You have struggles with your boss. You have struggles with your colleagues. You might lose your job. You're in a predicament. God says he will give you mercy and grace to deal with that tomorrow. You say, I, I don't think I can make it. Well, you can today because you don't have the mercy today. But guess what? Tomorrow, in Christ, you're going to have the mercy and grace to get through tomorrow. You say, well, I, you know, I, I'm okay today, I'm okay tomorrow, but it's the future. I look out the future and there's nothing but uncertainty and anxiety and I see stuff coming down. Some of you are sick and ailing. Some of you say, you know, I, death is right at my door. It's right there. I, I don't know how I'm going to make it a year from now. I don't know how I'm going to make it past that crisis in my life that I know is coming. And you say, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Now you don't, and now you can't. But then you will. How? New grace, new mercies. God will pour it out on you. He promises us that. How do you keep from being discouraged? I'm preaching to myself. How do you keep from running out of gas? How do you press on toward the goal to win the prize before God has called you, heavenward in Christ Jesus? I mean, how do you do this? How do you do this walk in such a way that in the end you'll stand before Christ and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, and everything won't burn up in the testing fire? How? 2 Corinthians 9.8. I love this. 
they receive this letter, they ask the same question, how do you do this? Paul tells them in another letter, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, listen to this. You know, if you, do you have a life verse? You don't have a life verse? I don't have a life verse either. But if you do, if you're one of those people, you like a life verse, do this one. This is a good one. God is able. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Did you hear all the alls? There's no exception to this rule. In every good work that God has called you to do, in every act of love, in every ministry, in every service, God is saying, I will make grace abound in you, giving you all sufficiency in all things at all times. It can't be more comprehensive. Because if this is true, there is no situation in your life today, tomorrow, or next year, or the end of your life, there's no situation that God has called you to that you cannot thrive in. Every situation you'll be able to thrive in because God said, I'm going to give you the grace. I'm going to give you the power. Every morning when you need it. Every afternoon when you need it. Every evening when you need it. Every, in those wee hours of the night, when you're lying in bed and it's dark and your anxieties are gripping you and have a hold on you, new mercies, new grace in that moment for you. Not just so that you can eke by, but you can be a hyper-conqueror. You can thrive in the midst of the uncertainty and the trials. There's no day without grace that he won't provide sufficiently. You'll never, in Christ, be lacking in grace. Never, in Christ, be lacking in power. If you look to tomorrow or next week or next year and you say, I can't handle it, I would say today you probably can't, but then you will because God will provide the grace. He will. In all things, at all times, so you may abound in every good work. Why? So that he'll be glorified. So that he'll be glorified. This is the life, saints. This is the power given to you by God. Every good work that God expects you to do, that he equips you to do, you can do by his grace, by his daily grace given to you. He provides it. It is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And if you believe this, I mean really believe it, not just what I'm saying, but you've taken it in and it's changing your heart and the way you think and live, then you'll go home and you'll sleep well tonight. You will. You won't be fretting at 2 a.m. You'll sleep. You'll stop complaining so much and you'll start serving more because you believe this. You won't go home and yell at your wife and you won't go home and be inappropriate with your children. You believe this. New grace, new mercies you see every day. You won't be ruled by pride. You won't try to self-exalt. You'll be humbled and you'll be grateful and you won't live a self-deceived life. You'll live wisely in the Lord by his grace. Do you believe it? New mercies, new grace every day for his children. What a glorious thing. Let's pray. Father, we know well as a people what the church in Corinth was struggling with because pride and self-exaltation being glory-starved define us well. I pray, Father, you would reveal the utter foolishness of taking pride, trying to grab glory, not being satisfied and humble in the glory of Christ. Awaken us to that truth this morning. Cast our eyes upon the Savior that we might see his infinitely surpassing worth. And then set our feet upon that path to know him. To know his love. To know the forgiveness. To know the companionship. To know the Savior. 
And with that, with that understanding, I pray, Lord, that you would equip us with the daily mercies and the daily grace you, you promised to give us, not because we're deserving, but so that you might be glorified. This day, pour out your mercy and grace that we might live this day in a manner that pleases you most. Tomorrow, as we all go back to work and school, Lord, pour out your mercy and grace on us tomorrow so that we can live as a people that bring you honor and glory most. And then for the years and decades ahead, so that your name is magnified in all the earth, pour out your mercy and grace upon us, changing our hearts so that we might live these lives that we've been called to live as a sanctified people, as saints. It's a glorious calling, Father, and you deserve all the honor and all the glory because you are the grace giver. I pray we would do that in Christ's name this day. Amen.